So this one, uh, Matthew 24, verses 15, but just to kind of catch us up on what's happening in this gospel. Um, Jesus is within 48 hours of the cross at this point in the gospel. He is uh, he has done all the things that we already know. He's flipped the tables in the temple. He has absolutely blistered the Pharisees to the point where their blood is boiling. And uh, they are ready to to let loose the dogs of war. And we're, they're just ready to kill him at this point. Uh, they're, they're past the like, well, we got to make sure it's a, we got to make sure all everybody's on board with this. They're over that. They're like, we don't care if everybody's on board. Once we kill him, we'll get everybody on board. That's kind of what their, their thoughts were. In chapter 23, Jesus set out on this blistering, scathing uh, uh, sermon directed straight at the Pharisees. And he basically, so if you'll pardon, come on in. We don't know where the chairs are. Um, in any given time that Jesus is speaking, most of the time you had a group of Pharisees that were always trying to narc out Jesus. You had the disciples, the 12, and then you had the, 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 the larger group that he was teaching to. But you always had those, those three groups, through, generally those three dynamics going on. Um, and sometimes Jesus wouldn't address the Pharisees. Sometimes he would address the Pharisees' uh, bad behavior. But like to the crowd, he'd like, yeah, let's not, let's not act like them. Uh, you know, he kind of whispers and points over to the Pharisees. Uh, but in chapter 23, he just basically just turns to the Pharisees and he's like, I want, I want everyone to know, I hope everyone does exactly what you teach, but does nothing like you do, because you are the worst kind of hypocrites, because you have everything that you're supposed to have, but you don't do any of it. You got everything that God's equipped you with, but you don't wake up and utilize it. And he is hot. Um, and at the end of chapter 23, I kind of uh, intoned this to you. Jesus has gotten so amped up that I have this image in my mind, good morning, that, that the disciples are literally like, they're like, okay, Jesus has ticked off enough people today. Let's, uh, let's, pick, up the, uh, let's pick up Jesus under the armpits and kind of carry him out of the temple area before they haul off and kill him right here, right now. And as they are walking out of the Temple Mount, they go across what's called the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives to where they're going to Airbnb the, that night over in Bethany. And uh, one of the disciples, probably Peter, trying to calm the situation down, is like, man, look how, look how really pretty the buildings are. You know how you men do when your wife's really, like, really sizzling hot, like mad hot because you did something stupid or you, you did something that you don't know that you did, but she's still hot? And you could tell that she's angry, and you're driving down the road, and you're like, man, look, boy, the flowers are really pretty today, aren't they, sweetheart? Uh, and that's kind of what's what they did, right? Because um, verse, verse 1 of chapter 24, Jesus came out from the temple steaming mad. Uh, and when, and as they were going away, his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Look how pretty they are in the sunshine today. And he's like, well, you just shut up because I don't even care because, and he goes off. Again, like he wasn't over it. <laughs> uh, he says, there won't be one brick stacked on top of another when God's wrath gets done with these fools over here. And they all kind of, you know, do what, what we do. They kind of cross their hands and go, okay, well, Jesus is still angry. Uh, <laughs> and that is, that is kind of the direction. So that is, Jesus begins to actually, when, when they kind of tip him off and he says, you know what, not one stone of the temple that you go to and you say God lives at the temple and you say God is 
uh, there and you go to worship and you go to sacrifice the temple and that's where the center of worship is, I'm telling you, the day's coming where not one brick is going to be left on another. And they're like, ooh, ooh, somebody should be writing this down, but he's still really angry. Um, and so he goes after it. So let's just read through real quickly. Chapter 24, verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all of these things, the temple, the buildings in Jerusalem? I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And he goes and he sits on the Mount of Olives. I, I'm going to, this is conjecture, but I can almost guarantee it. He's sitting at the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's a perfect view into the city, as he's going up the hill to go home that night to stay where he's going to sleep, um, this is where he would pause. This is how Judas knew to come find Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Because every day he'd leave Jerusalem, and every day he'd pause here. And so Jesus is taking a breather. I almost promise you he's gone into the garden, and he's had some prayers. He's taken a moment, he's calmed himself, and he comes out, and he begins to deliver to the disciples just those, probably just four of them, um, Peter, uh, James, John, and Andrew. Um, and he just starts talking to them about what he sees coming for the city of Jerusalem and for the nation of Israel. Uh, verse 4, And Jesus answered, and I believe in a little more collected tone, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah. And they will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And see that you are not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. We talked about that last week. Then they will deliver you to tribulations, and they will kill you. Oh, this is a, yeah. Okay, thanks, Jesus. Nobody ever cross-stitches this particular verse and puts it up on their wall in their living room. <laughs> right? You know, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. No one quotes that as their life verse, right? Like, my life verse is Jeremiah. I know the plans. Of, mm -mm, no, you're going to be hated and they're going to kill you and you're really dumb. Verse 10, in that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Uh, by the way, that's just a good biblical principle. When when the law is negotiable, love for each other becomes negotiable. And no one, none of us likes to live in an environment where like every little ticky-tack thing is like legislated, right? But when we give way as a believer, as believers, give way to like well, this law doesn't count for me. This law doesn't count for me. It is a biblical, universal principle. Where lawlessness is present, love grows cold. You can take that to your marriage, too. When you're not keeping the rules of your marriage, love grows cold. All right? Take that for what it's worth. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This is where we get the principle of the security of the believer, or once saved, always saved. It's one of the places. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And we're going to start reading verse 15, which is where our lesson will be this morning. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation. Okay, all right, Jesus. So we're going to turn up the wick a little bit. Um, let, me, let me first say this. Uh, what we know about the end times, what we think we believe about the end times when Christ will return, 
does typically not come from revelation. What you believe about the end times most likely has been pieced together from sermons and Sunday schools out of Thessalonians and out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in this discourse here that Jesus is, is saying to his disciples. And they'll occasionally visit, uh, I'll reference them, the book of Daniel or the book of Ezekiel uh, or the book, some books in Psalms. But he says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, who was standing uh, in the holy place, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Well, let's pa hit pause here. Does anybody have a different word other than abomination of desolation? Anybody? Okay. All right, well, we want to address it then. There's some other translations that... that uh, I think are better uh, than abomination of desolation. When you when you hear that word, come on, give me give me some first impressions. Abomination of desolation. Talk to me. What do you feel? What does it sound like? Okay. What else? Okay. What's an abomination? Okay. Okay, and what's desolation? Okay, so what's the abomination of desolation? Is it? Yeah, really bad. It's the, of all the bad things, it's the worst. It's absolutely the worst. This was first referenced, we first see this coming online in Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12. At the end of Daniel's uh, prophetic ministry, near the end of his life, um, God began to show the Old Testament prophet of Daniel some visions that not even Daniel understood. Now, Jeremy's in here. He's doing a Bible study on Wednesday nights on Daniel, so I won't steal your thunder, brother. Um, uh, but Daniel began to see some visions that not even Daniel the prophet could process. Matter of fact, Daniel chapter 12, God shows him a vision and goes, here, Daniel, here, see this vision. And Daniel goes, oh, hey, that's pretty terrifying. What does it mean? I don't understand it. And God essentially says, uh, it's not for you to know. Uh, walk away. And Daniel goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm, you didn't hear my question right. Uh, I don't understand, and I, I would like to. And God says again, I did not stutter. <laughs> I showed it to you as a gift, but I'm not going to explain it to you, which was a curiosity because Daniel was known as a vision uh, uh, as a dream teller, a dream interpreter. So God showed Daniel some stuff. He showed Daniel this abomination of desolation. This is an act that occurs, um, uh, I think, throughout history. There are multiple abominations of desolation. And uh, these are the times when something horrible happens in God's place, specifically, in this case, the temple. About 150 years before Jesus spoke these words. There was a guy named Antiochus um, who came in and in order to uh, put down a Jewish revolt, he slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple. Now, anybody, anybody have thoughts on that? Anybody have thoughts on that? How, how do the Jews feel about pig? They're an unclean animal. Um, specifically in the temple, specifically on the altar, and then they took the blood of the pig and they sprinkled it all over the inside of the temple. What do you think that did for the Jews? 
I mean, I mean, you think about it. I mean, you, you what? Yeah, but they couldn't do anything about it. Later on, they came in, uh, another revolt came in. I believe it was the Maccabean revolt. That's free for your dollar. You don't need to know that. Uh, and they cleansed the temple. They had a ceremony where they, they cleansed the temple. Um, but there have been several times throughout human history where horrible things have happened at the Temple Mount. Uh, God perpetually shows his people, I love you. I'm going to show you a connecting place for me. And instead of remaining connected to the Father in heaven, they get really focused on the, the, the medium, what's in between us, right? Uh, Old Testament story. Uh, there were a lot of Israelites being bitten by serpents out in the wilderness. And God says, Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent. It'll be a place where people can, I want you to put it on a stick. And if people will look to the bronze serpent uh, and trust in the God of the heavens, I will heal them. Well, uh, that happened. Well, guess what they did with the bronze serpent? They started away and started worshiping it. Like it was the source of healing. Right? Do, do you see? But we do this all the time. We take things and we, we turn them into into acts of worship. Um, uh, we do this with with church buildings and cathedrals, right? We call them sacred space. Now, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a good, beautiful church and stained glass window and, and the beautiful art as much as anybody, but there is no more sacred place anywhere in the world than where you're sitting as one who is the Holy Spirit is indwelling. You follow me? Does that make sense? So you are... I think those are certainly abominations. I think to me, the abomination of desolation is just, is a, says it's, it has a finality to it. It's been, and in this case, it's been fulfilled again. So, right. So there's a, in other words, it means it is an imminent, well, I don't want to be too sentimental okay. or made up, but it's, you know, it, it, there's a finality to what was and now what is to come. So it is, it is like a, well, it, it certainly deserves nothing more about so there is a theme throughout Matthew chapter 24, which is uh, not yet and be ready. We talked about this last week. Uh, so it's not yet, but you need to be ready for it. Uh, I think we don't know what the final outcome is. Every age, every generation has a potential antichrist, false messiah. Every age has a potential for a, a desolation, of abomination of desolation. All right, that's a word. That's a $10 churchy word. Let's move forward. Um, so he, basically he says, look, it's going to be so bad, verse 16. If you're in Judea, you must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on their housetop must not go down to get things out of their house. So the houses were basically, if you can think of like squares or rectangles, much like this room. If you had a stairway, it wasn't on the inside. It was on the outside. You'd go up the outside stairway, and you'd be in the upper room. Typically, we'd go there in the evening to cool off, uh, or if we wanted to maybe cook or do something hot, we would do it up there so it didn't fill up the main living area with all the heat. Um, and Jesus says, if it if you get word that, that the end is happening, those of you who live in Judea, don't even bother running in the house to grab your purse just run because it's going to come very suddenly verse 17 whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of his house whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak uh, we all understand this right we're out there doing some work we take off the the outer shirt we set it over there on a fence post and we're out here working because it's hot out here he says if you're about two rows down working on your fence don't even take the steps back to grab your coat 
hit the bricks. It is going to be terrible. Um, who, uh, verse 19, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. He said, oh, God help the women because it's going to be really, really tough on you because if you're pregnant, you're probably going to get left behind. I mean, there's just so much fear is going to grip people. It's going to be like, oh, save the women and children. Nope. We gone. Hope you can keep up. Uh, verse 20, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on Sabbath. All right. So I hope it's not cold. It's going to be tough. Hope it's not a heat dome coming out of the West Coast, El Nino, where it's 105 every day. Um, hope it's not on Sabbath. That's a Jewish reference because they could only travel uh, a certain distance on Sabbath. He's like, you better, you're going to be breaking the Sabbath. You better hope it doesn't fall on Sabbath. Uh, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now this is Caleb Clark's opinion, so you take this for what it's worth. This is a prophecy initially fulfilled by the sacking of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. Everything that just, just described here happened in AD 70. Rome came in, knocked the walls over. There was a, uh, a miniature version of a civil war happening inside Jerusalem, led by a revoltist named John Giscala, who actually was the one that started the fire in the temple. Rome took over, saw all the gold melting, and they were like, oh, let's tear everything apart to get the gold. And that's how the tearing of the temple started. Um, but there was this massive chaos up on the Temple Mount. And uh, I think it was Eusebius, who was a contemporary historian, wrote that they crucified so many so many Jews in AD 70 that there were no more trees to cut down. We, we think of the Holocaust in our day as like this horrible, atrocious thing, and it was. It pales in comparison to what Rome did to Jerusalem. They made it... Uh, no one lived there for the next 600 years. I hope you all understand that. If you all take a trip to Jerusalem and they take you around to all these sites of churches where things happened, you'll hear this word say a lot. Tradition says, tradition says. You know why they have to say that? Because for 600 plus years, nobody lived there. Nobody lived there because it was just absolutely wiped out. Rome did some terrible, terrible things. They were crucifying so many people that they ran out of trees, so they started crucifying people uh, on both sides of the cross. So they would take a husband and a wife and go, okay, here we go. And they would just crucify you back to back. So you would hear your, your spouse or your children or your siblings or your parents die along with you. And Rome did not care. And they would just line the road. You ever watch the old movie Ben-Hur? Y'all seen that? It's kind of illustrated, semi-illustrated there, where you would just literally have lines and lines of roads because Rome wanted people to know, you revolt against us, this is what you get. And it destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus was not kidding when he said, bad times are coming. Run as fast as you can. Verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus is going, there's a, there is a hope in this. Um, we're, I'm going to have to destroy, God. We're, God's going to destroy and allow the destruction of Jerusalem, um, but he's going to cut the, the this short. And it was, matter of fact, it was AD 70. It was this act that actually um, drove the Christian community throughout Rome at this point. Because most of Christianity was centralized in Jerusalem. And in AD 70, when, when Rome came in and did some ground and pound, 
all the Christians ran, along with all the Jews. And with them, they carried the gospel. So a lot of really great Christian ministry happened after AD 70 because they couldn't do it in Jerusalem anymore. Right? Uh, verse 23, if anyone says, behold, here is the Christ, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him. Don't believe him. For false Christ and false prophets uh, prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Every generation, every generation has someone, a man typically, ready to step into the role of world leader and world domination. Okay? Every single one. Every single age has someone who has sold themselves to power to the point that they would give up anything to gain control of the world. Right? You know what Jesus says? What profit a man if he sells his whole soul or sells his, uh, sells his soul but gains the world? That's a terrible paraphrase. There is someone willing to do that in every generation. Can anybody guess in the most recent histories, anybody who's been willing to sell their souls to gain power? Hitler. A guy named Joseph Stalin. Mao Zedong. And you go back just, you can go back every age and you can find someone every 60 years or so, every generation, and you will find someone. You can go back to Napoleon. You can go back to kings of England. You can go back to kings, heads of states of Europe and Eurasia. There is always someone willing to do horrible, terrible things to gain power. Now, this is how it was explained to me, and I think it's a great explanation. Um, does anybody remember uh, something called the Battle of Waterloo? Have they ever heard this? What's the Battle of Waterloo? All right, Napoleon's downfall. So Napoleon was, by the way, not short, okay? At least not contextually. He's about five foot six, was about average for the average age for the size men in that day and age. Um, brilliant military tactician. He ruled his soldiers with an iron fist. He was very disciplined. They took care of him. He took care of them. And he was very good at moving across the known world. And he was just taken over. And uh, eventually someone says, we got to put a stop to this. They defeat him. They capture him, put him in prison. He breaks out and goes, gets his army back up. It's like, let's get the band back together. Come on, guys. And they meet at the Battle of Waterloo, okay? And here's one of the sticky wickets of Waterloo. Uh, Napoleon did something really, really foolish. He let his enemy set the battlefield. He's like, we're coming to take back over. And, the, and those who were coming to fight says, okay, let's do it here. And they set the place. And uh, Napoleon's army was several days out. So the defending position went to the, the nearby river and got barrels and barrels and barrels of water and put water in kind of a C-shape around their own encampment and their own troops for days and days and days just pouring water on the ground. You with me? On the day of the conflict, Napoleon comes over the hill. He looks down, realizes that their front is completely vulnerable because they had staged themselves that way. So what Napoleon did was he sent his troops, his cavalry and his troops, right over the hill, straight ahead on with, with his enemy. And guess what happened to all the horses and the cannon? Boom, went straight down in the mud. And his troops began to naturally just try to find a dry spot, to, and they spread themselves so thin that Napoleon's army was defeated at Waterloo, fully and finally. 
listen to me. He lost because he let his enemy, the opposition force, select the battlefield. And in some ways, select the time. We have an enemy who thinks he is going to win. But Jesus has already set the battlefield. We know where it's going to be. The devil has to constantly be prepared in every generation. Because what did Jesus say? Who knows when, when I'm coming back? Nobody knows. So the devil knows where it's supposed to be fought and how it's supposed to be fought, but he never knows when it's supposed to be fought. So this is why every generation has a potential antichrist, because there is someone who is willing to literally sell their soul to gain world power, not knowing the, to the ultimate cost. Um, but this is what's going to happen. It happened in Jerusalem in AD 70, but there is a future conflict coming. So there was a not yet, but be ready kind of wait in this in this voice. Verse 25, Behold, I have told you in advance, so that if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, don't go out there. Or behold, uh, the Messiah is in the inner rooms. Now, what does the inner room sound like? Does that sound unique to you, odd? What's an inner room? It's likely a reference to the temple, Right? John Giscola, I told you this, he's kind of a revolutionary, started a mini civil war, set himself up as king in the temple. That happened. It's a historical fact. What do we know about the future Antichrist? They will set themselves up in a temple and call themselves not king, but God, right? So all this was just like little microcosms of truths happening. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes in verse 27, even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He says, so I know it looks bad, it's going to look terrible, but when, when the Son of Man comes back, and that's Jesus' uh, term for himself, when he comes, it'll be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Boom, it's just going to happen so fast. Wherever the corpse is, where the vultures, that's where the vultures will gather. Now, that's weird imagery, right? Now, we know about that, right? You've been driving through uh, Stankin' Rankin before and come up on a raccoon or a, a deer or armadillo, and all the vultures are just eating. You know what I'm talking about, right? We've all seen that. Maybe even try to chase some of those vultures off. Um, Y'all wouldn't do that. Y'all are good people. Uh, I do that. In Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12, a lot of the Old Testament imagery about this terrible coming talks about how, in Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 110, you can read that as well, talks about when this Messiah comes, that the, that the Father God has chosen, to be king, he says he's going to stack bodies. He's going to stack the corpses in the streets. It's going to be destruction. We don't like that kind of imagery, do we, in Christianity? But it's it's all throughout. It's really gory. We even have a song. It was actually written by a Unitarian, so it's not really a Christian song. But it, it says that he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Do you know where you get that from? You get that from the Bible, where it says when Jesus comes back, his white robes, that's the the, the, the corridor, uh, the, the hem of his garments will be soaked with blood of the people he's destroying. It's the wrath of God. It's coming. All right? Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, let's pause there just real quick, and then uh, we may have to cut it off just a little bit in a minute. Uh, this is not a prophecy that the sun's going to stop burning, 
or the moon's going to fall out of the sky or um, that the stars are like comets are going to start hitting the earth. We love those. Those are great movies, right? We've seen that movie, all 16 versions of them, right? Or it's Armageddon, right? We saw that movie with, what's his name? Bruce Willis, thank you very much. Uh, y'all seen that one? No nukes, no nukes. We've seen that movie. Um, we are, we as a American culture, we are, we love a good apocalyptic end of times movie. Most people don't even know it's Christian in theory, right? But that's this idea that this terrible thing's going to come, and they base it off these scriptures. Did y'all have your, in your Bible, are all these capital letters, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, all right? Some of your translations do. It's because it's a reference to an Old Testament passage. A guy by the name of Dr. Michael Heiser, who recently passed away, um, gives a really interesting description and understanding of what this is. In the ancient Near East mindset, when they looked at the stars and they saw them twinkling, what do you? When you see the stars twinkling at night, what do you think? What do you think? What have you been taught? Do what? Yeah, it's gases changing and temperatures changing. That's the twinkling. What do you think the ancient Near East mind thought? Anybody want to guess? Okay. So, well, yeah, in certain Eastern uh, cultures, that it's a it's an ancestor. It is. In the ancient Near East, in uh, Israelite, Hittite, Uritic, Ugaritic uh, mindsets, when they saw the stars twinkling, they go, "Those are the eyes of the angels." If you really want to read some weird stuff, you can go to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel talks about how uh, in heaven there was this giant wheel and it was covered with eyes. Or their angels and their wings are covered with eyes. What does that mean? We think, in our Western mind, eyeballs. In the ancient Eastern mind, they thought stars. Twinkling stars. Sparkling stars. Right? That's what they thought. They also believed, because those were angel eyes, what were behind them? Angels. So that's where God lives. And they believed that the heavens were existing. That's where all the angels and, the, and God lived. He lived up there, right? We have these sky gods. They live out there. And the twinkling stars, the eyes are there. And Jesus just said, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the, the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. The powers of the heaven, how does that fit with sun, moon, and stars? Well, it fits perfectly because that's where the powers of heaven exist. What did Paul say in Ephesians? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of heavenly places. This is what he's referencing. Jesus saying at the end times, all the people who think they're in charge in the spiritual realm will come crashing down and they will be put under my feet. You can read Psalm 110 if you want a really much cooler explanation of that. And then verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will, be, will appear in the sky. There he is. So he's cast down the old spiritual powers and the new spiritual power, the Son of Man, the new Jesus coming back from heaven. Uh, and all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is how the Son of Man in the Old Testament is always described. We'll get here in a couple of uh, weeks when we get to this part in Matthew. But Jesus is standing before the high priest. And they say, who do you say that you are? And Jesus says, 
well, I'm the son of man. And the priest orders one of the guards to get up and slap Jesus. And the son and the, the high priest literally rips his garments. Well, how why did he act so viscerally to Jesus saying, I'm the son of man? Well, they wouldn't, but the Son of Man, they fully understood that this was the deity coming down, riding on the clouds, and ruling the heavens. So when Jesus says, if you ever hear someone say, well, well Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. You, if you have Muslim friends, and you say, well, show me in the Bible where Jesus claimed to be God. Brother, I, I mean, I can show it to you, but I can't understand it for you. Uh, there is no further... Uh, demonstrative statement Jesus could have made about his divinity than by saying, I'm the son of man, because the Jews understood that to be God's chosen vessel of justice and righteousness ruling on this earth. He was going to make everything right. Uh, verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And then quickly, because he probably had some puzzled looks like some of y'all have right here this morning. And they're going, okay, okay, Jesus. Got it. Uh, and Jesus kind of looked at them and went, um, let me give you an illustration. Verse 32. says, now I want you to learn from the fig tree. Okay. Fig trees are everywhere. Good. We can learn from the fig tree. I don't know if I can learn from Jesus. He's still really torqued about what happened down at the temple. Still talking in crazy imagery and people getting thrown out of their houses and running for the hills. Let's talk about fig trees, Jesus. Let's do that. Now, to learn from the, the parable from the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender, tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. We all do this. After we've been through the winter, right, and we've kind of smelled the last smoke from the chimneys of our communities, and you go out to your favorite tree, and you look, and you go, oh, and on the very tips, there's this little tender, extra two or three uh, inches of growth, and then a little green little head, and you're like, woo, and you run in and tell your wife or your husband, we're going to have leaves, all right? Everything. We're going to go from brown to green. And then what happens in the south? In a matter of a week, whew, it just blows up. So this is what Jesus is referencing. You know that summer is near when you see it put forth the leaves. So, so you too, when you see all of these things, I want you to recognize that the Son of Man the Messiah, is near. He's right at the door. And truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There is no more problematic verse in the Gospel of Matthew than chapter 24, verse 34. What does this generation mean? Because if he's talking about this generation being the ones he's talking to, they're all dead and have been dead for 2,000 years. So we got a thinking problem we got to figure out. Um, if he was talking about the Jews, then in, in some ways that's still accurate. But by and large, the Jewish community doesn't follow Jesus. However, we do have some reprieve over in the book of Romans where Paul is writing to Romans and they're going, well, we're Christians. What do we do with these Jews, these problematic people? And what did Paul, he wrote a whole section of his gospel on what? First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Jews will be brought back into the church and have an important role. Or he could be talking about the church generation. All are possible. Don't know. The church will not fail. 
Jesus will come back and he will reclaim us. So uh, this is a problematic verse because it seems to be, remember that kind of that not yet, but stay ready. This seems to be in an immediate passage. This seems to be like, it's going to happen. And I'm going to come back. You're going to see me. When you read how Peter over in First and Second Peter wrote about the expectancy that Jesus was going to come back in his day, I guarantee you he was pinging off of this verse. Going, no, Jesus says, in this generation, like I'm expecting him. I'm expecting Jesus like, I mean, it's supper time. I'm expecting him any time, right? Um, but truly I say to you, verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all the things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's an ancient Near East idiom. Like, how hot is it? It's a million degrees outside. But how long will it last? Heaven and earth will pass away before this passes away. Verse 36, but that, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. You can go back to that, you know, verse 29 and 30, where he's talking about the, the, the powers, right, and the stars and the sun and the moon. It says, not even the angels know uh, the, the, the day or the hour, nor the son, but the father alone. For the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of Noah. We don't have time. There is a ton of fun stuff we could talk about as it relates back to Noah. And by the way, when Peter wants to talk about something really important over in his letters, guess what the story he references? Noah. So there's a lot of really interesting connections there. Verse 38, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Noah preached, we will preach. Noah wanted people on the boat. We should want people in the church. We will be rejected just as Noah was rejected. And the flood's going to come, and a vast majority of this world will be destroyed apart from Jesus Christ. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 40. And there will be two men in the field, and one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be in the grinding mill, and one will be taken, and one will be left. We're going to pause there.